One of our guests is going to tell you about the reaction so far of people who are coming into the new center in Newark. This is the Shawnee Baraka Women's Resource Center at 300 Clinton Avenue uh, in Newark. It just opened this month, and it is, it's, it's what Director Ambrose will describe to you as full service. Let me introduce my guests. I'm, I'm super excited about this show this evening. Uh, we have the Honorable Mayor Raz Baraka, who's uh, almost always with us. We also have um, uh, Public Safety Director Anthony Ambrose, and we also have Asia Smith, who is with Purple Rain, and she's also a social worker and also, um, can I say, embedded with the Newark Police Department, kind of your domestic, the domestic violence liaison Absolutely. with the department as well. I want to welcome you all to the broadcast tonight. Uh, I want to start first with uh, um, the mayor, who is now... Uh, is it uh, this is the first time, Dr. Raz Baraka? Congratulations yeah. <laughs> at thank you, Montclair thank you, State, uh, an honorary doctorate degree. What was it for, yeah. Mr. Mayor? Uh, Doctor of Humane Letters. Yeah, so it was very like exciting, uh, you know, emotional experience. It was great. I had a great time over there with the students of Montclair State University. It, that's not your first doctorate, though, is it? It is. It is? Yeah, first doctorate. Yeah. All right, all right, great. Well, you know, we're glad that uh, all three of you are here because uh, we know that uh, this center opened up uh, earlier uh, this month and uh, to much fanfare. And um, and, and I want to play now uh, uh, something here that um, um, kind of how this came to be. And... Um, and, and this center, in, in so many ways, for this city, 50 years after the rebellion, 50 years after the riot, it, 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 talk, it speaks to hope. It speaks to meeting your challenges. It speaks to looking at uh, an empty building and going by it every day. But uh, as so many people do in this city and in this state and in this country, just because you see something that is a shell one day, it takes vision to look at it beyond that. I drove past here every day, and the building was abandoned. I was insistent. Whatever money, whatever you have to create, this is going to happen. And we're going, it's going to be a testament to the idea that our community is coming alive. And the most vulnerable amongst us will finally get help. Mr. Mayor, what did you see as you drove past this building? Well, for years it was a, a shell, as you said. It was somebody began a project and, you know, never finished it. And it was always garbage in there and flood water. And we would have to clean it up all the time in the city and try to do a clean and lean, like a lot of the property, and, you know, trying to get the money from those guys, which, which would not occur. And then finally... We put pressure on them, and they made an agreement with the city to build a uh, uh, federally qualified health care center there first, uh, and, and, it, and it morphed into the idea of a women's center, which is, uh, it was going to be a FQHC for women anyway, but, uh, you know, when we didn't, that couldn't happen because of the federal government uh, did not want to give us the grant to do that, we had to begin to parcel together the funding that we could find to be able to put something together and keep it with the same theme as, as a women's center. But what did you see in this spot? Most people driving by would see this and say, man, I'm not going to fool with that. This is too much of a challenge. It's dilapidated. Yeah. So, but, but what did you see? What, what, what did you say that 
Well, it's, an, it. it's, it's an extension of the Lincoln Park. You know, we, we are building up uh, that whole corridor, the Lincoln Park. We have a, a condos going on one side. We have development that's ha about to happen on the other side. And the whole Stratford Avenue, Peace Johnson Avenue has always been a, a, a kind of a, a thorn uh, for the city, especially public safety. We closed down uh, two of those properties there. Uh, you know, we're going to redevelop that. There's redevelopment going on the other side. A young African-American kid from that neighborhood, Syree Morris, is building on the other side of it. And then this thing was there. <laughs> so we had to add and, and begin to look and visualize how we want to deal with Clinton Avenue. We turned it into an artist corridor. At the bottom, we know that that community needs a lot of services. We're missing a lot of services. In fact, right across the street from there, one of the young ladies perished because of a domestic violence uh, that lives in that building, that lived in that building on Stratford. So uh, it is very appropriate uh, for it to be some kind of a center the way it is now. And this, the name of the center is the Shawnee Baraka Women's Resource Center, right. named after your sister. Right, absolutely, yeah. I mean, and you know, the interesting thing is, like people think that I came up with that, but that, that's not true. Like, so the the ladies that were working on it, I, I appointed ladies to, since it's a women's center, I think that they should be responsible for what it what it looks like, what happens there. And, uh, you know, under the leadership of Mina Bay, Stacey Hillsman, all, all these folks came together, uh, you know, put it all into perspective. Then they came and said, you know, we believe that this building should be called Shawnee Baraka Women's Resource Center after your sister, based on, you know, what we're doing here, the vision uh, and everything. And then and Asia was a part of that committee as well. And uh, I agreed. I said, yeah, that's a great idea. And uh, I, I had to call and ask my mom. You know, I'm 48, uh, but I still got to ask my mother. So <laughs> I said, listen, we want to do this. Uh, hopefully it'll be okay. And she's, she gave it a, just a blessing, and they went forward. Good. Asia, I see you shaking your head. Well, I mean, just to um, reiterate what the mayor uh, mentioned, um, for me, I actually knew Shawnee, um, and I'm from the South Ward. And so when this opportunity came about, um, I was very fortunate to be um, asked to be a part of this, um, this team. And when we were talking about it, you know, for me, I thought it would be the most appropriate way to actually honor Shawnee. And then when we look at domestic violence here in the community, primarily um, in the South Ward and, and all the scattered resources and the challenges that victim survivors have to face when they're trying to seek uh, assistance and, and justice, we wanted to make sure that we can build a space or create a space that is that offers coordinated services that um, would take a lot of the, the guesswork and challenges out of it. So I was honored to be a part of, of this. Asia, you said a key word here. You said coordinated. Mm -hmm. Explain what that means in this instance. Well, um, having been a victim survivor myself and just understanding the onerous challenges that the system creates, um, we know, as Director Ambrose mentioned earlier, that um, victims will have to go to court for this, they'll have to go to another social service agency for this, you know, and by the time you go through all of those challenges, oftentimes people give up. You know, your, your, your hands are tied. You know, because you've, you've been through enough. You've been through enough as it is, emotionally. And so um, you have victim survivors that are not, um, that they don't have the resources, that is, to, to go to various places. And so we wanted to, um, again, help them to navigate the system, but also work very closely with our uh, Special Victims Division to make sure that the community is aware that we're here and what these services are about.
Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Ambrose, this is the first time I found out that Asia is more or less embedded, lack of a better word, with the uh, with the department. Uh, what is her role? What does she do? Uh, she's actually uh, an assistant social worker that uh, works with our victims each and every day. Uh, when, a, when a victim comes in, uh, if, if it's referred through, uh, through law enforcement or walks in off the street uh, and walks into the law enforcement section of our of the Shawnee Baraka Resource Center, uh, Asia gets involved immediately. Uh, just to say that there's going to be more Asias, that the mayor wants, uh, actually we just have two more on board, two more social workers on board, certified social workers. And I think that's, that, that's important because the police and the center provide services that are often needed in conjunction with domestic violences. And I think it's a one-stop, I don't want to say one-stop shopping because we're not shopping, but it's a one-stop care center for victims of domestic violence where they have to go to one location. Most of the time, victims of domestic violence are embarrassed. And they have to go to law enforcement one day, then they have to go to the courts another day, then they have to go to social services another day. And sometimes they get discouraged or they get embarrassed. This time, there's, there's, there's no... Uh, there's no diversion here. You go in one, one door, and all these services are offered to you. You're listening to Newark Today. We're talking about the Shani Baraka Women's Resource Center uh, specifically, and in general, domestic violence. And surely, uh, you listening out there, you know someone who's been um, affected, someone who's been impacted, if there is such a word, uh, by domestic violence. And we want to hear from you. Take part in this conversation. Ask some questions. Uh, if you find out something that uh, we're talking about and it's not clear, my questions aren't direct enough or, or getting to uh, the meat and the bone, then, you know, give us a call and let us know. The number here is 844-677-9283. That's 844-677-9283. Mr. Ambrose, you were talking about uh, one-stop uh, care center. This is important for from a law enforcement perspective because uh, while a victim is getting services uh, from folks like Asia Smith and other social workers and other um, providers there at the center, you're building a criminal case and you need someone, if that someone is a victim, you need that someone more or less whole to participate in the criminal justice system. So this is important to get that person um, um, centered to get that person right to get that person in a position so that she she feels that she has an advocate that the system is advocating for and she can stand up and go to court that's correct she, she needs to know that she has total support that after the law enforcement a segment of the uh of the uh, incident is taken care of that she doesn't have to worry about going to another building a mile away or two miles away talking to a social worker looking for counseling uh, she may need a job because she's in a position now that she's, you know, out of the house or she has children. We have job training available right there. We have the United Way right there. We have Parent Parenthood right there. So it's, a, it's an array of service, social services that are offered by the city of Newark to these domestic violence victims. Now, if someone is, is a, a victim of domestic violence, is that a place where they can go to say, look, something just happened to me? Will there be a police officer there that they can talk, who can take an incident report, uh, counselors who are there? That's correct. Uh, you walk into the, to the, to the Shawnee uh, Baraka Resource Center, there is a, uh, someone from the police department that will meet you at the information desk right to your left. Uh, they will guide you in the, in, in the right area that you need to be in. Uh, if you're a victim and it needs to be uh, reported and law enforcement has to be involved, then you would be taken into our special victims unit. Uh, a, a, a supervisor and a detective will interview, and that's when Asia Smith will become involved also. Asia, 
this has been open now, what, two weeks? Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, you were telling me earlier, there were people who heard uh, this radio station, WBGO, mm-hmm. mention and report on this center and people reacted to it. What happened? Absolutely. Um, the response has been overwhelming. Um, in addition to hearing the radio segment, people are riding by because, as the mayor mentioned, it was once um, a dilapidated place. And so now the excitement was like, okay, what are they doing in here? It's, and it's a beautiful facility. But um, what, what, re- what we really appreciate and value is the relationship that we have with law enforcement. And I, and I really must um, just highlight that. Oftentimes, victims will come in and they're usually skeptical about speaking with law enforcement officials. Um, Oftentimes, they'll recant or they won't want to go forward. But having civilians, having social services and social workers there to help them to understand that we are here for for you. We are here to help you seek justice. Um, It makes the process a lot easier. And so what I what I really value about the Special Victims Division is the number of detectives. Um, They're uh, phenomenal detectives that go above and beyond to make sure that victims not just get justice, but we're also holding offenders accountable and getting them to the services and resources that they need as well. Have the people who've been walking in, are they coming by just to check it out, to look at it, or have you had actual, v- actual victims, victims of domestic? Oh, absolutely. We we have victims every day, um, multiple victims a day that come in. And um, what's really interesting is, uh, you know, they come in for one thing, but then they realize that their circumstances are a lot uh, more dire than, than what they probably initially thought. And so... Um, that's the, the beauty of it. We're able to capture them and then guide them right over to um, our law enforcement officials to really, you know, get the, the, uh, the criminal justice system rolling. Asia, if I hear you correctly, some of the victims who are in the middle of some of this stuff don't quite understand fully what's going on because they're in the middle of the store. Right. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, too, we're not aware of what abusive behaviors are. So um, just from uh, a domestic violence advocacy perspective, it usually takes a victim between seven to 13 times before they even realize that they're victims. And so our goal is to just help to educate, give the, the information and give the tools how to navigate the system but again, you know, it's a matter of, of educating a victim and, and really letting them know this is the, the severity of what's occurring and we wanna make sure that individuals are safe. I'm curious, the, the women who are coming in now, the victims who are coming in now, are they from the immediate area of the center? Mm-hmm. We have folks that are walking in, like literally, they're walking distance. Um, people that have lived in the community, people have heard about it, and now, Um, the community is actually speaking out about domestic violence. This was once a very taboo subject, and most people would like to think that it doesn't happen to me, or if you're not impacted directly, that it doesn't have an effect on you. But for the most part, it's absolutely folks that are right here in in our community. You're listening to Newark Today. We're talking about the Shani Baraka Women's Resource Center specifically and the issue of domestic violence and the prevalence of it uh, in general here on WBGO, Newark Today, 88.3. Take part in this conversation. Uh, what do you think of this center? What do you think of what the city has done, the city's vision, um, what this center can do and how it can help? The number here is 844-677-9283. That's 844 877 
Describe for us, if you would, for people who may not know, uh, what happened to your sister? Uh, my sister, uh, Shani, uh, and her partner, Rayshawn Holmes, was uh, going to my other sister's home, uh, who her, you know, her, her, her estranged husband uh, had been, uh, you know, obviously doing things that he wasn't supposed to around domestic violence, and he hadn't been there, but he's he was... Uh, stalking and hanging around the house and doing all kinds of other things uh, to my my older sister and uh, Shani went there to get my sister's things with her friend uh, and they came in the house and happened upon him in the house uh, he actually uh, broke into the house and uh, you know they obviously had a confrontation and he and he killed both of them okay he, he shot them both there and and took their possessions off their body and and, and flee uh, uh, and went downtown. Middlesex County handled it pretty good, and uh, they were able to uh, capture and, uh, and convict him. So. And Piscataway, he's still in in prison now? Yes, he's still in prison now today, absolutely. Um, Asia, a, a fairly, to a certain extent, typical story of domestic violence as they tend to go? <coughs> Excuse me. That what happened to Shawnee? Oh, absolutely. And um, I think with that case in particular, um, if, if I can recall correctly, everything was done properly. They made the reports. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, um, there was safety in numbers, so the family was aware of it. Uh, Shani and, you know, Ray were just going there, you know, just seemingly to pick up something. And that's typically how it happens. And so we want to make sure that we're able to educate folks on the behaviors before it escalates to that, you know, as the mayor just mentioned with the stalking, you know, oftentimes we think with when you get into a relationship, if a person calls you constantly, you know, you may think that, oh, they're really into me or they're concerned, but it ultimately it's control. And then that leads into certain things. And so we want to um, just help individuals identify the precursors that um, that are often there that we usually we minimize Sometimes we deny because we have no idea of what it actually looks like. But that is it's exactly how, um, unfortunately, the cycle of violence happens for many victims. How widespread is domestic violence? I was reading something earlier about the, the Huffington Post did a, um, a series of articles, I believe, last year, early last year, and found that in January of 2016, there were an average of three women in America being killed a day because of domestic violence. That's, that's accurate. And here in New Jersey, we have to really look at um, women of color primarily are um, being murdered 3.5 times the rate higher than any other race. And so we don't have to use national statistics. We can look right here in New Jersey, right here in Essex County, right here in Newark particularly. And so what, what the mayor and our director has done, um, they're really innovative they're looking at it, and we're looking at the gaps in services. We're looking at all of the things that often prevent victims from going forward and often um, things that should have been in place to protect them. So um, it, happens, it happens very frequently, and I'm sure you can speak, Director, to the numbers. And Director <clears throat> Ambrose, I remember last year several times um, uh, at news conferences and different events, you were always talking about... Um, uh, some of the uh, homicides in the city and how they were the result of domestic violence. Every 10th homicide last year, 10% of our homicides were domestic-related. Uh, luckily, this year, uh, we, we, we have definitely a better 
uh, uh, record. Uh, we had we had none so far. But last year, uh, we can talk about uh, ten people lost their lives, much like uh, Shani and her partner did. And what's at the, the? I'm always curious about these cases. What's at the center of these kinds of of relationships when they turn this violent and they turn turn deadly like that? What what's most of the times, uh, it, it's jealousy, it's rage, it's control. Uh, you know, it's all of the above. Asia, absolutely, I I agree wholeheartedly with our director. Um, it's control, it's power and control. Um, you have individuals that are not willing to allow an individual to move on with their life. Um, they're not equipped to handle let's say rejection, um, there are a number of factors that um, contribute to it, but for the most part, it's about power and control. The victims you've seen come in, uh, Asia, to the center so far, you've been able to counsel them, educate them, uh, and, and I'm sure it's not a, a, a situation where it's just one day they're in there and they feel empowered. It's almost like therapy and counseling mm -hmm. to a certain extent where you have to come back and and continue the treatment. Right. Uh, well, they're yeah. relieved, and, and the good part about it, too, is, is it's not just domestic violence services. There is a broad spectrum, as our director mentioned, of services that are at the center, from job training to HIV and AIDS counseling to uh, we have a space, a work section, for individuals can come in, they can work on their resume, they can look for, um, you can really repair and rebuild their lives. And so what I love is when they come, they say, okay, I can go here, then I can go over here, and then I can go over here. And we have a place for children, you know, so that while the, the parents are being serviced, the children have um, access to other uh, resources. We've got Winona's House is a partner there. So they're able to um, provide additional assistance um, for, for witnesses of domestic violence. Um, you know, again, we've got uh, LGBTQ services that are on site there. So individuals that are in relationships with uh, an individual and they're not really sure how to move forward or proceed, there are, again, a different a, a variety of uh, resources there. Mr. Mayor, it sounds like somebody can go into the center, a victim, but come out a champion of his or her life it, with, with the services, based on what you're saying, the services that are provided there. Yeah, that, that's, that's the idea completely, that, that that actually is what we are looking for. Uh, you know, ultimately, you know, the vision was to create a space that way, and, uh, you know, the, the women and the organizations uh, in this city got together and made that a reality. They knew exactly what to do, what to offer, uh, how to organize it, uh, you know, wh what what police services should be present, wh where they should be. They put it all together, and uh, we basically went in there and agreed, right? <laughs> Say, yeah, this is this is exactly what we're looking for, and and it's uh, you know probably one of the proudest things that I've been a part of uh, since I've been the mayor. What was the city's contribution in terms of uh, dollars or anything like that? Well, we we uh, <laughs> paid for the building. We had to get the building constructed. We had to. Uh, you know, uh, make sure that it was built. I mean, most of the furniture and stuff in there is a lot of uh, people assisted and and brought furniture in for us, which was great. You know, they, they decided to come in and furnish the property for us, which was excellent. But, you know, we had to uh, lease the prop, build the prop, get it built, lease it, so forth and so on, and, and then ultimately we're going to buy it outright. The number here in WBGO, Newark Today, is 844 Nine two eight three. Take part of the conversation. Tell us what you think of this issue, domestic violence. I'm sure that you know someone 
who's been a victim of domestic violence. And we certainly want to hear from you or that person. If you need some help, we have some answers for you here tonight. Asia, what went into this center? How did you and the other organizers, how did you decide that all these resources would be in one place? Um, I guess, not I guess, just being from the community, first and foremost, um, understanding the, the system and the process that victim survivors have to go through. Um, we, we realized that we had to make a difference. We had to um, step in to keep those numbers um, reduced, if you will. And it was just our, our own our hope and our, our love for our community, for the Baraka family, and most importantly for Shawnee and Ray. And, and we literally put our heart and souls into it. It was one of the most um, monumental things that I've been a part of so far. Give me an idea. When you went to some of these folks and approached some of these providers about what you were doing and what this center was going to achieve, what was the reaction? What did people say? Oh, it, overwhelmingly excited. You know, people were absolutely amazed at the fact that we have a mayor, we have a leader who gets it, first and foremost, because as an advocate, we usually have to convince fight. and fight, you know, our elected officials to take this seriously enough. This wasn't the case. And so when folks heard about it, and then when you understand Shawnee's story and the history and what this center means for the community, we've had people who are still trying to um, become partners. And so I think that it's gonna wow. continue. Absolutely, folks are coming to volunteer. People are coming in with an, an array of resources. So again, it was just overwhelming um, how people wanted to be a part of this. Before this center, what was available in that particular neighborhood on that side of town to help people? Nothing. I mean, not like that. I'm not, I'm not saying nothing in that aspect, but um, in that area, unfortunately, um, not services that people were aware of, I should say. Um, it's very difficult to find. Mr. Ambrose? So I, I think that when, when, when the police get involved, uh, the first thing they would do is take a report. The second thing is they can, they can tell a victim, they can refer a victim, but the victim has to follow through. And I think that this helps people definitely follow through because it's easy, it's less embarrassing. So I think that when, when, when there was a committee put together by the mayor, I think uh, Amina Bay and, and, and Stacey Hillsman, I think they took in consideration because there were some of the things they asked. A victim of a domestic violence, what is needed? You know, it's the law enforcement end is the easiest to take a report. But after they leave that police officer, they go either back to the offender's location or they go back and they're, they're, they're assaulted again. So I think it's important that it was about the needs. What's, what's a domestic violence person need? And putting it all under one roof so that person doesn't have to leave after they make that report or after they deal with law enforcement. We're here talking about this issue. There was someone who was at uh, the opening, and, uh, and I, wanna, I, I want folks to hear what this person said about, uh, about the center and the impression uh, she has. As a survivor of domestic violence, I am one of the blessed ones, very fortunate ones to still be here to tell my story because so many people don't make it out. Um, I feel that this center is definitely necessary in the city of Newark because when I was going through my issues and my situation, I didn't have somewhere to come, a safe haven. She didn't have a place to go. Now she does. Absolutely. Now she does. When... Women come there and 
they report domestic violence. Uh, as Ambrose, uh, Mr. Ambrose just said, they cannot go back home. Is there an opportunity for them to get housing through the center? So that's one of the things that we, we do um, assist. We uh, help victim survivors go into a shelter. Um, so there is protocol for um, servicing domestic violence victims. And there are safe houses, well there is the domestic violence safe house here in Essex County. So once we advocate for that person, sometimes they can stay here in the county, but oftentimes we have to relocate a victim. Um, so it depends on the circumstances. So every case is different, but there are housing opportunities as well. We're talking about the Shawnee Baraka Women's Resource Center and domestic violence here on Newark today. We have much more to tackle on this issue, and, uh, and we'll get to it in just a few seconds here. Hi, this is Gary Walker of Morning Jazz every weekday from 6 to 10 a.m. here on WBGO. But you know, if you happen to miss a day, you can catch up using the new archive player and listen to Morning Jazz whenever it works for you. In fact, well, Morning Jazz may not be in the morning for you in the first place. You could be on the other side of the world, Tangiers, and you're over there and you're listening to Morning Jazz, which is late night as the sand blows against the windscreen. I'm waiting for my invitation. In the meantime, I'll give you plenty of music. Listen to your favorite WBGO programs when you want to with the Archive Player. It's something new at WBGO.org. Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, Nat Cole, Sarah Vaughn, Tony Bennett, Mark Murphy, Louis Armstrong, Billy Halliday, Antonio Carlos Jobim. And then some, Singers Unlimited, Sunday, 10 a.m. until 2 on 88.3 FM and WBGO.org. You're listening to Newark Today, and we want to hear from you. Call us at 1-844-677-9283. That's 1-844-677-9283. never think that you're going to be that person. You never think you're going to be that woman. Um, you watch movies and you see how it plays out. It's usually like a man coming home drunk and upset. And in my mind, that's what a domestic violence relationship was. So it really took me um, a minute to be able to be honest with myself, to admit to myself that I was in a situation like that. But I still knew that I was strong. She knew that she was strong. Newark Today, WBGO 88.3 FM and WBGO.org. We're talking about Domestic Violence and the Shawnee Baraka Women's Resource Center. Uh, we want you to take part in the conversation. It's 844-677-9283. That's 844-677-9283. Once again, our guest, Public Safety Director Anthony Ambrose, Mayor Asbaraka, and, of course, uh, Asia Smith with uh, Purple Rain and also uh, a liaison with the Special Victims Unit of the Newark Police Department. Uh, Asia, you were mentioning that uh, part of the protocol is housing. Uh, making sure that people come through there um, and and report domestic violence, that they will get the services they need. And part of that service is, of course, don't go back to where you came from. Yes. Well, I mean, our thing is, is safety is always the factor. And we're not in the business of um, 
breaking up homes. We're not here to vilify or demonize anyone. Um, we just make sure that this violence doesn't escalate to um, have fatal consequences. Um, but there are many times in, in a lot of cases, the victim may have to go back. It's not always, you know, you can leave that day. So when you look at um, victimology, depending there's on safety the severity plan- of what they report. Absolutely. So we do safety planning. Um, for instance, um, I'll just use a, a particular case. There was an individual who could not leave that day. You know, there were children involved. There were other things involved. So we had to work, uh, devise a plan where um, this person had to gather certain documentation, um, put certain safety uh, factors into play, and then we were able to remove um, the victim safely. So, again, it, it all um, centers around the individual. Uh, you, you mentioned children. I'm going to get back to that. But first, I'm going to get to this caller we have on. Uh, this is Jennifer from Rockland County, New York. Jennifer, thank you for listening. What's your question? Um, I would just wanted to make a comment and commend the people to get for what they're doing in their community. Um, myself being a person of that, you know, really with, um, we're, having, we're having a hard time hearing you. I agree with your guest when she said that people of domestic violence sometimes may not even know they're being abused, but once they realize that they're afraid, they're being But um, the thing I, I understand and I appreciate that someone there is standing up for these women. They've gathered resources. They have not stopped. They are committed. And I pray them success. I thank them for what they're doing. And I pray someday that I'm capable in my own town. Thank you. Asia? Oh, thank you, caller. Um, and we appreciate that. That's very inspiring. And we hope that other communities will look at what Newark is doing. Um, this is very cutting edge. Um, we're doing something that has not been done to this magnitude, even here in the state of New Jersey. And so I am grateful that the caller recognizes that, even from Rockland County, New York. So it's, it's really good to hear. Asia, you're taking my questions away. You're giving answers before <laughs> I can ask them. <laughs> But uh, I was going to ask you about that. Are you getting phone calls? Are you getting inquiries from other jurisdictions, people who know about this center and saying this is one that, as as Public Safety Director Ambrose said, this is one-stop care? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we're getting calls from all over, um, people that we didn't even know we're paying attention to what we're doing here in Newark. Um, Newark has already ha- has a wonderful reputation of what's being done here as it is. But to take on such a, a critical issue um, from a social services aspect is, is really amazing. Jennifer, thank you for your call. Mr. Mayor, the caller said something about fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it your goal that this center will take some of the fear out of dealing with domestic violence and reporting it? Well, I don't know if it's going to take the fear away, just uh, give them a, a, a kind of appropriate response to that fear, like to make people be able to say, I'm afraid, I'm going to do something about it, right? Uh, and and that's that's really, you know, what we want them to be able to do, have a safe space, like the uh, other person said, that there's somewhere for them to go where we can wrap some services around them so they, they don't feel lost and alone, uh, that they have to endure all of this and nobody's going to help them. Uh, you know, that they get a restraining order and the guy comes around anyway or they don't have any way to get another job because he's paying for the rent or 
they have to go back home. They don't have no place, no way to go. They don't have anybody to talk to. Uh, no social service providers. Nobody's telling him, telling them that they're right and he's wrong. Where they begin to feel like they deserve the punishment that they're in, or they become careless and believe that uh, the guy uh, is doing this uh, because he, like like Asia said, cares or is concerned, and he just has a temper problem and he's not going to really hurt me, right? Until he hurts you or somebody close to you. In in Shawnee's case, in in the Baraka family case. Were you aware at the time of this guy's violence, of his propensity to violence, his his record, and and what what he was quote capable of doing? Well, you you uh, we were never uh, sure what he was capable of doing, I don't, and and that's the problem, right? So you don't know, you never know, you know how far people will take this. You know, we knew that what he was that he was uh, you know involving himself uh, with with my sister in ways that he should not have been. And that the, the arguing had uh, intensified, if you will, and, and other things have t- had taken place. So we, uh, like you said, the reports were done, things were done. You know, uh, we sent word and message, so he didn't come around anymore. But uh, he wasn't around physically, but he was around. You know, he was calling, he was doing this, he was hanging around, he was insisting upon. And I, and I think things escalate when you separate, right? Uh, when they feel like they still around and still have some level of control that, you know, the the violence may not turn deadly, but, you know, when they feel like they are cut off completely, and I think that's what ultimately became the situation, when they cut off completely, there's no way to get back in, that they begin to feel desperate uh, uh, to a point, uh, you know, the the mentality, if I can't have you, nobody can kind of mentality, and I think that's where where, where he was going. I want to talk more about that, but first I want to get to our next caller. This is Linda from Bloomfield. Linda, thank you for calling. What's your comment or what's your concern? Hi, I wanted to comment that, um, well, first, I have a kind of a question. I was wondering if you find that the people who come to you, for, uh, women who come to you for help with this problem, um, lack support from their family and friends. The reason why I ask this question is because I've been in um, a similar situation. I have a good friend who was in an abusive relationship in which, in both cases, um, the family and friends aspect, they, there wasn't any support because um, this person would follow, um, you know, my friend around and be a hassle to the people around. And nobody wanted to deal with that and nobody wanted to have to call the police and then have the woman be like, oh, don't call the police, it's okay, and, you know, things like that. It gets complicated, so. Thank you, Linda. Asia, would you like to address that? Well, um, absolutely. Um, That's typically what happens. Um, Victims are often alienated from family and members and friends. Um, Tell me, let me me delve into that alienation, because um, part of it, and and Linda, I hope this was part of your, your question, your concern, too. When Sometimes relatives and friends see this taking place. They're not involved in the relationship. They're on the outside looking in, and they they hear the comments. They hear the person who's the victim of this talking about this situation. And as much as you want to and you will encourage them to do something, they don't. And sometimes people say, well, you know what? I'm just going to wash my hands of it and walk away. And that's typically what happens because we don't understand domestic violence. And that's what I always mention to a victim survivor whenever I counsel them. The first thing I start off with saying is, I understand that you have family members, you have friends, and you have people that are concerned about you. But unfortunately, 
when you're emotionally attached to an individual and you don't have the proper knowledge and and resources, if you will, to provide, things can can actually get worse. You know, family members now get involved. Um, you know, the violence can then escalate. Um, so it's important that we educate people um, and then family members and friends usually get frustrated because they feel like, well, the abuse isn't that bad or the person continues to go back into the relationship. So they'll usually um, distance themselves from um, from from the person. So I get that very much so from what the caller is saying. And that happens all the time. And just to kind of go back when you mentioned about the fear, the reason why people are afraid is because they fear that there is no one that understands. There are no no supportive services and resources. So to have that community, to have you know individuals that are aware means um, makes a, a world of difference. Good. I want to ask uh, Public Safety Director Ambrose about that in a second. But first, I want to take a call. We call this show Newark Today. And I hope you realize by now that by the callers from New York, <laughs> from New York City, from Bloomfield, and from all over. And I'm going to say all over because on the phone with us now is Paul from the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Paul, welcome to the broadcast. What's your comment? What's your concern? All right. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, my, my comment is... Uh, First of all, thank you, uh, the young lady uh, Asia Smith. that uh, yeah. has the audacity to have the uh, components available to people who uh, get to the level where, you know, violence has occurred and they have a safe haven. Uh, my concern is this, uh, conflict resolution skills. You know, you talk about people who uh, deal with rejection, uh, they're jealous, uh, and some other things that I can add on to that. You have... Uh, Components in place, or do you offer classes to help people and teach people how to resolve conflict? And I know one thing from personal experience is that uh, people don't know how to communicate. People don't have active listening skills. And I think if they were able to adapt that, or if you were able to adapt that into your program, I think that would help people or keep people from getting to that level of violence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Paul. Thank you um, Thanks, Paul. For, for that. Um, and in fact, that's one of the things that we do as well, um, providing workshops and classes and trainings on healthy relationships, effective communication and conflict resolution. Uh, Director Ambrose, I'm curious about something. The 10 homicides you mentioned uh, last year for domestic violence, do you recall if any of those folks had called, had already reported some form of of domestic violence uh, to the police before it escalated to um, to to a homicide, uh, at least one, at least one, at least one. And do you recall what happened? Were, were police able to steer that person to services before something turned turned deadly? Uh, it was reported. Uh, there was uh, restraining orders involved, and naturally, uh, they make up. They drop the restraining orders. They drop the complaints, uh, and sixty percent to seventy five percent of our domestic violence is that the victim drops the complaint against the offender, uh, and they make up, and then that person, be, it becomes fatal, or it could become fatal. Mm. In in this instance... Um, and the conflict resolution skills didn't help them. Right, right, <laughs> right. And in, in the case, uh, Asia, you mentioned uh, Shani's case, um, and the person who did this to Shani. Uh, everything was done the right way, and... One of the concerns, I think, for listeners and for uh, people who are involved in this issue and advocate for this issue is the frustration of 
doing everything right, and then there are still outcomes like what happened to Shawnee. Mm -hmm. And you can get, you can go to court, you can get protective orders, you can get restraining orders, you can do all the proper things. But, uh, and the mayor I think touched on this a little bit, you're still powerless to the rage that person has. And that's why it's important for us to educate individuals on the behavior of, of, of a batterer and not because oftentimes we think, oh, that's my, my lover, that's my partner, that's my spouse, that's the parent of my, my children, and they won't do that, you know. Um, but you never know what a person will do. And, and oftentimes we think because we're not capable of harming someone in that way that someone else wouldn't. So um, what what I also do, and we do with victim survivors, is we do a lethality assessment. And um, it has it's a series of questions, and you can give a score, if you will. And I share that information um, with victims, and I'm very candid about what they're dealing with so that they can be hypervigilant, so they can at least, you know, again, you can do everything right, but there's always going to be someone out there. And that's why it's important to work with law enforcement, to to come forward, to make sure that people are aware of of what's actually happening um, to try to prevent it. And, and you know, I I think that people don't understand that these folks are sick. Like, so, like, the the idea that you just have to talk to these people properly is just incorrect. And I think one of the uh, problems is, like, so the, the gentleman that was involved in my sister's case, like, we knew him for a very, very long time. Like, you know, he grew up in almost with us in our neighborhood. Our families are, are, are close to each other. And uh, part of the issue is that, you know, people in the community begin to think that's impossible for this guy to have done this because they aren't violent people, right? They're not out there robbing or shooting or committing these kinds of acts. So they believe that this person is incapable of doing the things that you're accusing him of doing which makes the other person now uh, have to explain or describe to you that they're not lying, right? Or that this is something that is possible. We're not just angry and trying to set this guy up and all kinds of things that way. And it's shocking uh, how people become unhinged, you know, in these kind of relationships, in these these situations. But because I I honestly believe that that there's a sickness involved in this, uh, you know, coupled with power and control uh, that drives people to a point where they think they should take somebody's life. And I guess they, they, I don't know, but I guess you, not you, but but collectively the people who do this, get to a point when they realize they no longer have control, that this is over, and whatever they had, they've lost it. Absolutely, and it it makes them do extreme, you know, kinds of things. And, and, uh, you know, their their mental uh, state is deteriorating, you know, as it gets, uh, goes on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. We have a caller. Uh, this one is from a little bit closer to home. Um, this is uh, Scott from uh, West Orange. Uh, Scott, what's your comment? What's your concern? Uh, yes, first off, uh, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, it sounds like this, the center has a lot of programs um, and services for victims of domestic violence and education programs for victims. My question is, how does the center or any other programs in Newark educate boys and young people about domestic violence so we could almost like start early to try to prevent it before it happens. Asia, would you like to address that? Because I, mm-hmm. I know that there are some schools that deal with, mm-hmm. um, uh, especially when it comes to adolescents, deal with issues of uh, relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and exactly what you were talking about, Asia, of 
knowing the signs of abuse, of people go overboard with control and trying to control you. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, thank you, Carla, for bringing that up because that's another component of what we do. It's community education. It's awareness. And so we are um, working with schools. We are working with other uh, grassroots organizations to go out to educate um, our teens um, because we're seeing a lot of our uh, abuse cases. Our uh, victims are younger and younger, and our perpetrators are getting younger and younger. So um, a part of what we're doing at the center is um, creating a robust campaign where we're going to each school and just as uh, an FYI, as of May 2011, um, every middle and high school in New Jersey is supposed to have a prevention and um, intervention component. And so we're looking at that and making sure that the schools right here are doing that, and then we'll be able to kind of curtail the violence. Mr. Mayor, that kind of education, what, 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 what kind of a benefit do you think that could yield over time? Well, I think that, uh, you know, it, it will definitely be helpful in terms of you know, uh, relationships or, or ultimately, you know, just letting people know what they should and should not be doing, uh, what, what, what is lawful, what is unlawful, what is intimidating, what, you know, the signs of, of, of what abuse is and what it looks like. I think that that is definitely what people need to see, especially in a, a culture and an environment where, you know, the subjugation of women is like sport. So at the end of the day, I think it's important for us to know that when you cross the line, what crossing the line looks like, you know, and how it makes people feel and how you get yourself in these kinds of particular situations that you should not be in. Do you, th do you think that, that lawmakers in this country get it in terms of what you were just talking about, in, in terms of the control and the power and, and the need to, uh, especially boys, to educate boys about, about this subject? I just think we have a lot more to do. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, when we do things like this, we begin to uh, bring it to the forefront, educate people, at least have the discussion about it. So we begin to, you know, not normalize the abuse of women and let people understand that that is something that should not happen. And, uh, you know, we, we begin to move in that direction. I think lawmakers, as, as, as well as everybody else, they're not immune to what happens in the society. That is, you know, the, the burden of proof is always on the victim and not on the perpetrator himself. And I think that that becomes the problem. Um, Director Ambrose, I want to uh, ask you this. When uh, officers uh, re go to uh, the scene of a domestic violence incident, and it's not something that's deadly, but you get a phone call that uh, my boyfriend or my husband has uh, hit me across the head with a frying pan, or uh, the, the husband is calling and saying my wife has a stick and she's been um, uh, hitting me with it now and, and broken the stick uh, uh, across my head, whatever the case is. What's the obligation of police according to the law in terms of are, are you is there law says that you, you, you have to separate these parties? Somebody has to go to jail. What's the law? Well, well, first of all, if, if you go to any domestic violence or any any type of fight, you should definitely separate them, the combatants uh, and investigate further. I think that when you're talking about domestic violence, there's two types of of, of arrest. There's discretionary arrest and a mandatory arrest. Uh, if you go to a scene of a domestic violence and a female has a laceration and is bleeding from, the from her head and, and the husband or the boyfriend or the spouse, whatever, whatever it may be, or says, well, she hit me first. It's about the severity of, of the injury. Uh, then the uh, one with the less severe injury uh, gets arrested by the police. And that's uh, according to the domestic violence uh, uh, rules uh, of the state of New Jersey. 
Uh, Asia, you mentioned something, uh, um, and, and you mentioned lethality mm-hmm. test, a checklist. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming at that point when someone comes in and uh, is in need of services and education on domestic violence, I'm, I'm assuming when you go down that list, that must be something awfully sobering Absolutely. to a certain extent to that person. It's eye-opening um, because, again, <clears throat> when you don't recognize or understand what abusive behaviors are, um, just as humans, we become so desensitized, unfortunately, um, with violence. And oftentimes we think that that's just a part of a relationship. You know, all couples fight, all couples argue. Um, however, you know, it's not about an argument gone awry. And so when I, you know, ask certain questions, I mean, we on a lethality assessment, there are questions about weapons. There's questions that um, ask about prior history of abuse. You know, there are certain things. And so oftentimes, because the cycle of violence happens the way that it does, many victim survivors will either minimize, rationalize, or deny that something is happening. But a lethality assessment puts things into perspective. And so it, it lets them know this is what's occurring in your in your life. And, and I'm very um, candid with victim survivors to let them know, I understand this is someone that you love, and I understand that this is someone that you care about, but this is someone who has the potential to harm you. And if you do not look at the severity of this, unfortunately, you know, um, there could be some consequences. Maybe the victim will not get killed. But, you know, if you're defending yourself and, and you end up, you know, harming the other person. Right. And oftentimes, you know, as a victim, we typically don't report the abuse to the police. We actually go um, even further to hide it from family members and friends. And so, you know, when you do find yourself in court, when you do find yourself um, in a situation, you know, there is no quote unquote history because you never reported it. You know, you never um, you never even kept a record. So I tell victims all the time, even if you don't proceed with the police department, keep a record of your abuse. You know, make sure that you understand, um, keep dates so that we can establish um, pictures, all that pictures, um, text messages, emails, voicemail messages, because those are all the things that they will need to substantiate um, the claims and the abuse that's happening against them. You've actually administered these lethality tests. Yes. Um, I I know as a reporter, one of the things that I do uh, in terms of doing interviews and asking people questions is uh, sometimes you get an unspoken response. Mm -hmm. And you get that through body language. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine when you're delivering and administering the lethality test, it's important for you to look into that person's eyes because uh, at, at that point, as sobering as it may be, it may be an opportunity, a golden opportunity for that person to sort of shut down, minimize whatever's taking place, as you said. But it's important for a social worker like you to say, I know there's something else here that they're not verbalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the the one thing that I do find, um, and I get this from, from survivors and victims, they'll come up to me in the street because they know of the work um, that I've been doing throughout the state over the years, and they're relieved that there's someone who believes them, there's someone that understands them, and there's someone to help put uh, what they're experiencing into the proper context, you know, and so um, in addition to the lethality assessments, there are other tests that we use um, that will allow the victim to document the abuse themselves. You know, here's a, a, a picture, if you will, and we allow them to put on, uh, to indicate on the pictures where they've been hit, 
what's happened to them, you know, things that we can't see, you know, because of clothing and things of that nature. So it's it's a way in which we do it. But again, more often than not, they're they're um, relieved that someone understands them and they're able to help them. And does your work then become part of the police record, but part of the investigative record? Absolutely. I mean, I work very closely with our uh, detectives. Um, in fact, the fact that we are civilians um, really helps to um, solidify the work that the police department is doing because they're not um, intimidated, if you will, you know, because, of course, when you see a badge, you know, we, we often think, oh, goodness, you know, that's law enforcement. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. But when you have someone who speaks their language, who looks like them, who doesn't wear a badge, um, it's easier for them to connect. And then we're able to um build a bridge between our law enforcement officials. I want to get some final thoughts. Mr. Ambrose, your final thoughts. What do you hope this center achieves? Less victims. I hope uh, that uh, over the years, uh, and over actually over the months uh, that, and over the years that we have less victims, that people become uh, more apt to uh, come forward when they're victims of domestic violence. And what Asia said, she's, she's right on point there, that a lot of people do not report it until most of the times people... Other people report domestic violence. They hear it from an apartment. They hear it from outside of a house. Uh, so I think that it's, that's important. Asia, a few seconds. Your final thoughts. To really understand what domestic violence is, to become educated on the uh, behaviors of perpetrators, not about a gender. Mr. Mayor? Well, I would say the combination of both of what they said, the less victims, obviously, and making sure that we educate people on the seriousness of domestic violence and the signs and symptoms of it. I want to play for you as we close out. Uh, what the mayor said about the naming of this center. I drove past here every day, and the building was abandoned. I was insistent. Whatever money, whatever we have to create, this is going to happen. And we gonna, it's going to be a testament to the idea that our community is coming alive. Yes, sir. And the most vulnerable amongst us will finally get help. Shawnee wasn't just my sister. I think I would be a little safer if she was here with us today. She loved this city. She was a role model. She was an example uh, in this community. She was an example for me, an example for my brothers, an example for my family, an example for other women out here. And she was an advocate and a fighter. So my answer to you is, it's not being named after Shani simply because she's my sister. It's being named after Shani because she deserves it. Mr. Mayor, I want to thank you. Asia thank Smith, I want to thank you. Thank you. Mr. Ambrose, I want to thank you, too. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening to this broadcast tonight. We've been talking about the Shani Baraka Women's Resource Center, one of a kind in the city of Newark, one of a kind in the state of New Jersey, and apparently one of a kind in America. Our folks here at the station, Corey Goldberg on boards. I want to thank him, Ang Santos on phones, Alexandra Hill producing, Doug Doyle, executive producer and news director. I'm your host, Michael Hill. This is WBGO Newark.